0: You're listening to larger story messages with Dr. Larry Kraft. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com. On your chairs was a journal conversations. I want to say just a brief word about this. A very close friend of mine, Dr. Gary Moo and this is his brainchild of a number of years ago and he involved David Benner and myself in creating this journal. And it's what it, uh, the title suggests exactly what it is. It's a conversation between those who would like to understand and think about and more particularly be formed spiritually by Jesus Christ. And we bring a variety of traditions together. The table is large and all those who are confident in Jesus and want to become spiritually formed and think about this, uh, are invited to write in the journal to dialogue about it. So please take a look at this journal if it's of interest to you. Subscriptions are available. And if there are extra copies here, they will be available for free as well at the PSI booth. Is that correct? Good. An excellent journal. Well, I have two problems, folks, among others. One is I am the last remaining obstacle between you and dinner. (laughs) And secondly, I'm following Dallas Willard. heard the story, a true story, about uh, when Michael Jordan was in his heyday. The Bulls were winning by a large margin, so Phil Jackson put a rookie in the game for the first time. That season, first time ever he played in the basketball court in the NBA. And that was the night that Michael Jordan scored 63 points. The rookie scored one basket in five minutes. True story. And after the game was over, a sports commentator asked him, what's it like being on the same court with Michael Jordan? The rookie responded... I'll never forget this night as a game in which Michael and I combined for 65 points. <laughs> That's my prayer. <laughs> I had the privilege about a year ago of spending a weekend with the leaders of a, of a fast growing church that would identify themselves as a postmodern church. And in this particular church, lots of really good things were happening, and I was caught up in it and overwhelmed by it and thrilled with it. College students were coming out of the drug culture and following Jesus. Disillusioned professionals were recognizing that truth is in Jesus and were coming back to him. Good things were happening that were unmistakably the work of God's Spirit. At the end of our time together, I met with the pastors and uh, other leaders of this particular church, and one of them said to me in our close to our closing meeting, he said, um, you, you, you've, you've spent a weekend with us. What do you see as our core weakness? Lots of great things are happening. We're excited about the spirits pouring himself out in our midst. What's our greatest weakness? And I knew these folks fairly well, rather intimately after a short weekend, and, and I felt a freedom to respond honestly, and what I said was, I'm, I'm really not sure if you're giving enough thought to how deep change in the way people relate over time takes place. I'm not sure if you're giving enough thought to how over the long haul, People are spiritually formed, if you will. You're so caught up in the moment, and I wouldn't blame you. I think it's a wonderful moment in the life of your church. But have you thought about what's going to be happening 20 years from now in this particular church? And if you don't understand that a little bit more clearly than perhaps you do now, if the idea of how relational change takes place, if that does not become clearer, then your excited converts of today will be your bickering elders of tomorrow. And pastors who you thought were doing quite well will be exposed in their pornographic addictions. Or their dead marriages will never be exposed and you'll wonder why they're so angry and demanding and controlling. Later that evening, the pastor in charge of family life, a wonderful man who I have deep respect for, The pastor in charge of, I think his title was Pastor of Family Life and Community, he told me privately, with nobody else listening, that he and his wife were simply not close and he didn't have a clue how to change that. Another pastor pulled me aside and said, I've never been busier in kingdom building efforts and I've never felt more distant from God. I feel spiritually empty. I asked them each, who else knew what they had just told me? And they said, no one, you're the first person we've shared it with. I was safe because I was leaving the next day. I wonder how true it is that the inside worlds of most people in our churches today are never known by anybody within the church. Let me uh, let me ask you to do something as I begin my remarks. I'm going to ask you to just reflect. I'm going to give you just a few seconds—not long enough to give this question justice, but. Reflect on a, on, a, on a, I think, a rather important question, perhaps. Here's the question. What's the one thing about you that you don't want anybody in your church to know? How's that for a nice warm beginning to the talk? <laughs> I'd like you to write it out, put your name, and I'll read it to the congregation. <clears throat> What's the one thing about you that you really don't want anybody else to know? And as you reflect on that, ask yourself a second question. If you did tell someone in your church the one thing that you really would not like anyone else to know, the one thing that perhaps you're struggling with the most, that you're most ashamed of, that you're most confused by, the one thing in your life that's most difficult spiritually perhaps, relationally, if you did tell someone in your church about something that you've been hiding for a long time, how would you want that person to respond? what would a spiritually forming response look like? My bet is you wouldn't like it, I know I sure wouldn't, if when you sensed uh, an internal reality with which you had no idea how to deal, if you, if you shared that with somebody and you sensed that they were, immediately went into the fix-it mode. Couple of head nods, all I need is four, I'm fine. If, you into, if they were into the fix-it mode, you would immediately put a wall up between the two of you and you'd be looking to exit the conversation. Advice, quick advice, an immediately relevant biblical passage, an offer to pray. You might express gratitude to the would-be helper, but my guess is you'd leave the conversation somehow more lonely than you were before the conversation began. Entering someone's life is hugely different from merely guiding them. Or that person might suggest counseling. So You'd come to someone like me. I'm a psychologist. For years I've seen people in therapy. I spent 10 years in private practice as a professional therapist. and can't tell you how often that people would share their stories with me. Difficult stories of significant depression, suicidal ideation, terrible stories of difficult backgrounds, uninvolved fathers, controlling mothers, sometimes horrible stories of sexual abuse, heartbreaking stories of sexual addiction for which the person couldn't find any solution. And as I've listened to these stories in my professional office, I can't tell you the number of times that under my breath, never out loud, I've said to myself, this person needs professional help. (laughs) Maybe we've made a century-long mistake. Maybe we've assumed as a culture that the really deep stuff going on in the human psyche, not, not just the bad stuff from childhood, that included, but the difficulties we face in our current relationships, the really hard things, the crazy emotional stuff that goes through your mind, How many of you had a crazy emotion just in the last couple hours? Yeah, Dallas Willard put his hand up quick. Professional discount for therapy, sir. Maybe we've assumed that the really tough stuff and dealing with all that tough, tough stuff really belongs to the counselor and not to the community. Maybe we've assumed that the dealing with the really difficult matters in the human soul belong to the professional therapist and not to the mature Christian. I differ with that. And maybe as a result, one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest tragedies in our local churches is that we're filled with people who lead unobserved lives. We don't know each other. Is it possible that in our church, because we don't know what it means to experience the Trinity, Is it possible that we've become perhaps the community of the unknown pretenders rather than the community of the known and therefore broken seekers? And maybe it's because we really don't know what to do when somebody shares something honest about their lives. We give them a quick verse, we give them a quick prayer, we distance ourselves. What does it mean to enter another human being at the deepest level of their souls so, that when that conversation is over, something about the reality of God has been stirred in the deepest part of their being. What does it mean to talk like that? I remember, I remember years ago when I first began private practice, I was fresh out of graduate school, and I had my very first case ever. This is 35 years ago, I suppose. My very first case ever of an anorexic. Young woman struggling with eating disorder of anorexia. Or, Mother was frantic. Her father was also terrorized, of course. He handled his anger by literally at dinner time. He would put his arm around his daughter's head and jerk her head back and pry open her mouth and try to stick food in it. That's hardly the solution. So they sent the person to me, and I really wanted to be a biblical counselor. How do you biblically counsel anorexia? Remember, I was maybe 27, 8 years old. I looked in the concordance under A. (laughs) Didn't find anything there, so I figured I had to depend entirely on secular psychology to provide help for this young woman struggling with anorexia. I knew I was puzzled. I didn't know what to do. Why wouldn't somebody want to eat? I miss a snack. I'm famished. I don't understand. What's going on in a human soul suffering from that sort of tragic situation? That can be very, very serious. Any humor about that is directed at me, not at the anorexic girl. I now believe that the core issues going on beneath the surface of all non-organic problems, I believe that the real stuff going on beneath every problem that doesn't have an organic base, there are those that have medical bases and we need physicians for that, but apart from those situations, I believe the core issues can only be addressed sufficiently and adequately and meaningfully and transformatively by by the gospel. Now, how do you say that meaningfully as opposed to tritely and try to get a couple of amens out of, nobody did it, so it's all right. How do you say that in a way that means something? See, I believe, I've come to believe this now, I believe that an adequate spiritual theology can provide us with the passion and wisdom to enter the depths of another human soul with life-changing spiritual conversations. You know, we're putting in our culture today, we're putting the word spiritual before every word we can think of. Spiritual formation, spiritual discipline, spiritual transformation, all sorts of words about spiritual, spiritual direction, which often, I'm afraid, in our culture, spiritual direction, not always, but often means awakening the soul to the spirit's work without delving deeply enough into the soul to promote true brokenness. But I believe that maybe what's lacking, at least one thing that's lacking in in our churches, in our culture, in our communities, is a spiritual theology that can guide spiritual conversations that will in fact create spiritual communities where spiritual community, dependence on God in the middle of brokenness, could actually develop. Catch those four uses of the word spiritual? Spiritual theology? What's that? I remember asking a James Houston, professor of spiritual theology at Regent College. What's spiritual theology? I've heard of systematic, I've heard of biblical. And Dr. Houston, an elderly Scottish, brilliant gentleman, marvelous man, he said to me, Well, laddie, spiritual theology is theology that makes a difference in somebody's life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need a spiritual theology that can guide spiritual conversations so when you and I have lunch together and you tell me about a problem that I can talk to you in a way, not as a therapist, but as a brother in Christ, that could actually create a community between us that somehow parallels the kind of community that the Trinity has enjoyed for a very long time. And when our spiritual conversation rooted in spiritual theology develops a spiritual community, that perhaps spiritual maturity, which I would define very simply as dependence on God through struggle can develop. So often I wonder, do we get caught up in spiritual activities? whether ministry or events or study, that create the illusion of being spiritually formed? Because we're busy and lots of good things are happening, do we get so involved in all the work of the church that it lets us avoid the world of the interior? What's really happening in my soul that you don't know about that I don't want to tell you? And let's me also avoid the fact that my relationships really aren't what they ought to be. Folks, can I tell you, it's a lot easier for me to stand behind this podium and talk to 500 people than to know how to deal with my wife when in the middle of an argument. This is a piece of cake compared to that. Of course, I'm married to a real woman. My thought has always been, if you're married to a real woman, you have two choices. Become a real man or kill yourself. That's the much... <laughs> it's my view that in... Communities that are truly spiritually alive, spiritually alive communities are communities where, where people have no secrets, where at least one person in your community, not the whole congregation, where at least one person in your community, at least one, knows everything that's going through your mind and your heart and your soul. Communities where people would be seen deeply enough to experience indispensable grace. And it's my position that communities without secrets, communities of the observed and known, would become communities of the the broken, and therefore hopeful people. Only broken people are hopeful. Proud people are falsely hopeful, if they're hopeful at all. And because I believe that nothing changes us more deeply than to look bad in the presence of love, communities of the broken would, in fact, become spiritually forming communities. Is that what we're all about in our churches? Because the concept of brokenness is central to what I'm wanting to think with you about this afternoon for a few minutes, I want to hazard a a very beginning, not meant to be a definitive understanding, but a, a beginning understanding of what the word brokenness means. What's it mean to become a broken community? Am I a broken person in my community? A person who makes known my deepest struggles for which there really may not be any answers other than heaven? A person is broken, I would suggest, if two things are going on in his life. One, The person is broken if that person is desperately troubled by an awareness of what is inside that cannot be changed apart from an intimate communion with God. Am I aware of something going on inside of me that has no possibility of changing apart from experiencing the Trinity? Apart from an intimate communion with God, am I aware of something within me that has no possibility of being changed? Are you? Am I? And secondly, a person is broken, I suggest, if that person is aware of a profound inadequacy, a profound inadequacy to make a real difference in anybody else's life apart from the power of God. A person is broken if that person is aware of a profound inadequacy to make a real difference in somebody else's life apart from the power of God so that neither gift nor training really is the answer. Brokenness, I would suggest in passing, is not about overwhelming pain. That's how we usually think about it. Person's broken if they hurt real bad. I suggest brokenness is not about overwhelming pain, it's about culpable failure. A failure to seek communion with God as the first thing in every circumstance of life, a failure to seek communion with God in the middle of a marital argument, a failure to seek communion with God in the middle of profound disappointment with your children. The failure to seek communion with God in the middle of terrible health problems, in the middle of ministry collapse. The failure to seek communion with God, I would suggest, comes close to what brokenness is all about. And the failure to release the power of God in humility and love as we relate to others. That's what brokenness is all about. I'll give you a quick verse in passing for that in Hosea chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. The prophet says that God is longing to redeem us, to restore us, to the wholeness and joy that he intended for his people to to experience. But the Bible says in Hosea 7 and 13 and 14, I long to redeem them, but I can't. And here's why. They're wailing from their bed. They're not crying from their heart. wonder what the difference is. They're wailing from their bed and not crying from their heart. And I would suggest as long as we focus on our pain, what are we going to do as we focus on our pain? If you're most aware on your soul of your pain, which going to be your number one priority? Answer, relief. How many here have had kidney stones? <laughs> I've had a couple. When I was driven to the hospital with my first kidney stone, it was here in Denver, my wife and I were staying at a hotel downtown Denver, much like this. We live in Denver, but I was speaking the next morning to a group and we got a hotel room for the night. And I began to feel pains that I was unfamiliar with at four in the morning. They were overwhelming pain, so I rolled out of bed and rolled on the floor. Made noises appropriate to the occasion. I <laughs> thought my wife, since we're one, she's a share in the moment. She saw me rolling on the floor and discerned quickly something was wrong. She called the ambulance. I had my first ambulance ride. It was kind of neat. Rode to the hospital, got to the hospital. The medical guy had called ahead to a doctor. He was there to greet me. As I was wheeled in the Gertie into the hospital, the doctor met me, looked at me, knowing pretty much what my problem was. He wasn't sure, of course, yet, but he had his good guess. And his first words to me were, we have more medicine than you have pain. I could have kissed that guy. <laughs> I wonder why God doesn't say that. Why does pain sometimes continue? And why does he not always respond to us when in our pain, we shake our fist and demand relief, thinking we're broken because we're hurting so bad, and we're wailing from our bed versus crying from our heart. A very different concept, admitting our failure to value God above all other goods in any circumstance. Then as a result of a failure to value God above all other goods, when we see that failure and admit it, we plead mercy rather than demand relief. Maybe that's when God reaches us. So if we need, as I'm suggesting, if we need a spiritual theology that can guide spiritual conversations about our interior worlds that will create spiritual communities, where do we start? Where do we start if we would like to become the community of the broken that can talk to each other? Where does spiritual theology begin? Well, I want to suggest to you that if we're going to center in on what really could happen in the spiritual community, we're going to begin by... Not understanding, because we'll never quite get an understanding of this, by contemplating, pondering, reflecting, getting lost in the mystery of of the Trinity. The beginning of all theology, I suggest to you, of course, is the study of God. Theology means the study of God. And since God is a Trinity of three persons, then the center of all right thinking about life and change and the church is Trinitarian theology. And when I start thinking about Trinitarian theology, I like to begin very, very simply. I begin by thinking of the Trinity as a rather rare entity, a small group that really gets along well. (laughs) And they have for some time. And when I think about a Trinity of three persons that's been getting along well for the whole past eternity and will for the future eternity, I begin to realize that, that final ontology, final being, the final nature of things, is a certain way of relating that is foreign to me naturally. The way the Trinity relate among themselves defines reality. Reality is a certain kind of relationality, a certain kind of community, which it was Jesus' prayer, as we heard Dallas talk about, be reproduced in the Christian community. I take it from John 17, we've already heard of in that prayer, in John 17, that what the Lord most wants to see happen, as he went to the cross, praying to his father in his high priestly prayer, he was saying, as a result of my death, what I want is I want to see Christians form small groups like ours. Is it happening? What does it mean? If that's true, that I suggest it isn't too much of a leap to suggest that all good marriage counseling... All good parent counseling, all good counseling about sexual addiction and eating disorders and depression and anxiety needs to center on people learning what it means to enter into a certain kind of relating style. And until we focus on relationality, I don't believe we're getting to the core of reality in our souls. Are we specializing in our churches on moving people toward Trinitarian-like relating through spiritual conversations. And If we are, I believe we have a church. A church is not about simply doing lots of good things. It's not about merely behaving morally, as again, we've already heard. It's not about merely being. It's not about discovering your voice, finding out who you are, using your gifts. It includes that. But essentially, it's about being in community, being with others the way the three persons of the Trinity are with each other. We need spiritual leadership to value Trinitarian relating above all other goods. Above evangelism, above mission, above youth programs, above every other good thing that churches do, the central value of the spiritual leader, it seems to me, has to be to lead by experiencing the reality of spiritual community. To spiritual leaders, I would therefore say this, I know many of you are involved in positions of spiritual leadership in your church. And I would say, begin with a Trinitarian perspective on all of life. And you'll spend a lot of profitable time thinking about what I see as three core implications of Trinitarian theology that I want to document for you now. Three core implications of Trinitarian theology that might actually have some practical benefit for a small group. And for a conversation over lots and for a counseling practice. First implication of Trinitarian theology, I'd put it very simply, very obviously. Number one, you'll develop a theology of relating. A theology of what good relating looks like. A theology that moves you away from self-obsession, where you recognize it in all of its subtle forms, Toward a theology of God obsession and relating. What does that look like? It's foreign to our relationships generally. It's foreign to our marriages often. I've often shared that my wife and I have been married as of yesterday for 39 years. We met when we were 10. <laughs> we couldn't begin going study then, of course. She was, she was going study with Carl at the time. But when she had the wisdom from God, I believe, to break up with Carl at age 12, I moved into her life. He began dating. Why would we marry at 21 that I come into the marriage, she came into the marriage with a bunch of baggage, a bunch of struggles, a bunch of difficulties? Why did I call love at age 21, marrying this beautiful young woman, walking down the aisle to join me in old hands and declare that we're going to be married forever? Why would I say out loud that I promised to love on her, cherish to all sorts of neat things till one of us dies? I put it better than that, but that was the gist of it. Why internally was I saying, you're doing something for me that I like? I was hurting as a kid for a variety of reasons, and when you move toward me in a certain way, I like that, and here's the, here's the plan, here's the covenant of marriage. Keep it up. <laughs> Self-obsession violates Trinitarian relating. Why does my wife, and with, this, with her permission, of course, I share this, Many of you have heard me share this before. My wife went through four years of sexual abuse, ages 8 to 12. I met her when we were 10. I had no idea she was involved in, she was a, a victim of sexual abuse for those years. And she came into the marriage, there in her lovely white gown declaring her commitment to me. And I believe in the center of her soul, or at least somewhere close to the center. She was saying, I hurt badly. I've never valued myself as a woman the way I long to. But you have treated me with respect and dignity. I like the way you make me feel. Here's my covenant. Keep it up. Is that Trinitarian relating I call it tick-on-the-dog relating. You know what a tick's there for, don't you? To suck out of the other what will fill itself up. The problem, of course, in most marriages is you have two ticks and no dog. <laughs> but suppose we developed a theology of relating that was not tick-on-the-dog but was Trinitarian. Suppose we started reading the books on the Trinity that seems so far above my head, books that are sometimes very readable, like Daryl Johnson's Experiencing the Trinity, the marvelous recent book, a rather heady book that's full of profound insights by Stan Grenz, now with the Lord, a book called Rediscovering the Trinity. Suppose we began reading the Torrance Brothers, and they're dealing with Trinitarian perspectives, and suppose we began to realize from looking at how the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate, and suppose we look at all the biblical data to get some understanding of that, maybe we begin to realize how, how rarely we've ever seen good relating growing up. As one man put it recently, who was in the middle of an affair, he said, my family was not big on talk. Stop whining and get moving was the basic M.O. You'll realize how little... When you look at Trinitarian relating, how how little what you long for the most ever happened, the desire to be known, to be to be seen. You'll face how your dad and your mom, your spouse, your kids and your friends today, past past tense, current tense have have, have never touched the very centre of your soul, the way you long for it to be touched. And then you'll begin to realize that nothing, no relationship in this world fully satisfies. And then the idea of biblical groaning will make sense. And then Paul's words in Corinthians 15 will make sense. That if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Because there's a part of my soul that you simply cannot touch. And the best mom, the best dad, the best wife, the best husband, the best pastor, the best friend will never touch a certain part of my soul. Will I begin to be a longing person? Living for what only God provides, and what I will experience in full measure for eternity, and with the hope of that, free now to stop demanding anything from anybody. Well, I begin to understand enough about trinitarian relating that I'll see how how uncurious I am about you. When I begin to realize in the core of my soul, my my energy apart from the Spirit really is self-obsession, that when you tell me you're struggling, my immediate thought is not going to be to be really interested, but rather to feel inadequate and back away, or feel judgmental and give you a bunch of advice. When I begin to think about how the Trinity relates and what perfect relating is all about, then we'll begin to see perhaps... What well, some of the fancy words that theologians use actually mean in a practical way, words like perichoresis, a big fancy word, para around choresis dancing, will begin to understand that the Trinity is a dance routine, that they're dancing in perfect rhythm with each other because they're absolutely and radically and purely other centered. Does the Father ever get jealous of Jesus' billing? It never happens. And as we begin to see how they're relating, how the Father pours himself into the Son, how the Son pours himself into the Father, how their relationship is so intense that the spirit of their relationship has forever been an actual person, maybe as I think about Trinitarian theology, I'll develop a theology of relationship that will leave us all desperate for God. First implication of Trinitarian theology. Second implication as you think about Trinitarian theology, perhaps you'll become deeply convinced that true spiritual formation, and I want you to ponder this, that true spiritual formation is essentially relational. True spiritual formation is essentially relational. And if I can unpack that for just a moment and help you see what I'm wanting to say here, that a lot of folks, we assume are spiritually forming quite nicely because of all they're doing for Jesus because they're impacting the people closest to them in very negative ways, there's not true spiritual formation going on. There's counterfeit spiritual formation going on. The formation of busyness and productivity. Maybe we'll realize that the person who is busy for the Lord, but doesn't relate like the Lord, is not spiritually formed, no matter how big his ministry is or how many books she has written. I want to suggest to you that the clearest measure, if I understand the scriptures right, the clearest measure of becoming spiritually formed is how you impact not your congregations, but those who are closest to you. If I'm being spiritually formed, if I'm in the process, if I'm on the spiritual journey, those closest to me will have reason to be attracted to God. They might not be. Judas rejected his opportunity. I'm not suggesting that If I'm spiritually formed, that in every case, my spouse will respond to me, my children will be doing well. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this, that if I am spiritually formed, they'll have an opportunity to to catch the aroma. And either hate it like Judas or be changed by it like Peter. Questions like this need to come to our minds as we think about, as pastors look in their congregations, as pastors look in the mirrors and say, is this a church that is centering in spiritual formation? Questions like this need to come to our mind and be asked, does your spouse feel safe with you? Why did Rachel not share her sexual abuse until we were married 18 years? I wasn't a safe person. Do your friends observe a a hunger in God? in your life that draws them to the God you're hungry for? Do you feel in your own relationships a passionate desire to enter the depths of another person's soul? Not because you feel so competent, but because you feel so desirous of pouring Christ into that soul. Or do you try to keep things pleasant as you keep busy? Do you relate to anyone with no higher agenda than to reveal Christ? So the second implication of Trinitarian theology would be you'll be persuaded that spiritual formation is essentially relational, and the more that is understood, the more you're going to experience deep humility and brokenness. Third implication. If we start thinking about the fact that God has called us to enjoy communion with him if we start thinking about the incredible truth that the Trinity in their dance has actually invited us to join the party and to join it now and perfectly forever, if we start thinking in those terms, then perhaps we're gonna discover within ourselves what many of us would claim, but very few actually live. You'll find yourself yearning above all else to know God. The third implication. You'll find yourself yearning above all else to know God, to enjoy each member of the Trinity uniquely, as John Owen discusses in his marvelous book, Communion with God, to enjoy the Father in a way you won't enjoy the Son, to enjoy the Son in a way you won't enjoy the Father, to enjoy the Spirit uniquely, to enjoy each member of the Trinity uniquely. Is that even a thought in our congregations? Or are our congregations largely consumed with the idea of, if I get it right, life's going to work. If I raise my kids right, they'll be godly. And I'll somehow find, uh, find some way to obey God enough so I'll get all the blessings of life to make me very happy and I'm very glad God's there to provide me all these blessings. But relating to him isn't the point. As we ponder Trinitarian theology, we're going to find ourselves yearning to know God above everything else and to realize that our effect on people could be so powerful and so strong because we can offer a level of authentic involvement in spiritual conversation that leads us both to fall on our knees in the presence of holiness and to stand up in the presence of grace. If, in fact, we ponder Trinitarian, relation, uh, Trinitarian relating for the rest of our lives and we begin to yearn to know him above all else, I would suggest to you that ministry will become less important. It'll be put in its place. It will become less important than authentic relating. And authentic relating will take over first place in our lives. Authentic relating to the Trinity, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And authentic relating to others, being curious, entering their souls, hearing their struggles, being safe so there are no secrets, being a broken person who models brokenness and so therefore invites brokenness. And as we begin to put that in first place, then maybe the words of C.S. Lewis will begin to mean more to us when he said someplace, if we put first things first, second things will be thrown in. But put second things first, and you'll lose both first and second things. You'll see everything but drawing close to God as a second thing. You'll see health as a second thing. You'll see a good marriage as a second thing. You'll see godly kids as a second thing. You'll see wonderful ministry as a second thing. It's all second to knowing God. You'll see the difficulties in life when your husband has an affair, when your wife decides to leave you. You'll see it as a painful doorway to deeper intimacy with God. When your teenager gets hooked on drugs, you'll cry as never before, but you'll focus more on your own brokenness than on how you can change him. When you feel spiritually dead and empty... You won't look for methods to change that interior reality. You'll rather face your profound impotence to change anything that matters as an opportunity to trust and to learn to rest by still waters until you learn to dance with the Trinity. Trinitarian theology, I suggest to you, is the foundation of spiritual theology, of a theology for living. I really do believe that there's a new way to live. And the more that new way of knowing God better, no matter what, comes into focus, the more we'll see church as a community of broken people longing to know God and relate like Him, rather than a community of reasonable people trying hard to do a lot of good things. I want to end my comments here in just a few moments by sharing with you what I see as two models of church in the Western scene. I wonder what our churches would look like if we took seriously the words of C.S. Lewis. A very familiar quote uh, quote to many of you. C.S. Lewis said these words, it's so easy to think of church, to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, building, missions, holding services. Lewis goes on to say that the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It's even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose than to spiritually form people into becoming little Christs. Is that what's on your mind as you pastor a church? Another place, I don't have this in the PowerPoint, another place, speaking about the, about the big purpose of Christianity, Lewis said this, every one of us is attracted by bits of it, by bits of the big purpose. Every one of us is attracted by bits of it and wants to pick out those bits and leave the rest. That's why people who are fighting for quite opposite things can both say they're fighting for Christianity. I want you to picture a model that I think is very common in Western culture. And this picture a circle. The circle appears on the screen, and just ask yourself what belongs in the central circle of the church? Not so much what should be there, but what is there. What's the ruling driving passion? behind the leadership so often in a local church? What's the DNA of a local church? Is it possible that in many churches, the core agenda, the driving passion that leaders salivate over is to make something happen and to make good things happen teaching programs, mission outreach, youth work, cultural impact, evangelism. But as a driving passion, I'm here in my position as pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, leader in my church in some form, and I'm coming to the church because I want to see something happen. That's what matters. We're going to make something happen. We're going to make an impact. We're going to do good things. If that's the DNA of your local church, then I would suggest that out of that, the second circle in this model of the local church, will be a vision. A vision of what could happen. If we're committed to make something happen, let's get a vision in our circumstances, with our resources, and our community, what could happen. Church growth, expanded ministry, worldwide impact, good things, no doubt. And if we focus on making something happen and then get a vision for what could happen, then there's another circle that's gonna develop in this one church model, The vision to see something happen is going to lead to the development of a strategy. Here's how we can do it. We want to make something happen. We have a vision for it happening. And here's our strategy to make it happen. We're going to hire consultants, allocate resources. We're going to construct methods for making certain things happen. And we develop a strategy. And once we have a strategy, of course, we lastly, in this very simple sketch, need to mobilize We need to mobilize resources with opportunities, plan, motivate, get going. And as a result, the church values people who get on board far more than those who lag behind. And if you're successful and gifted, if you have an A-team, then you're a good member of that church. In this model, I suggest people become more unobserved than ever. In this model, the interior world is never dealt with. In this model, you must go outside the community to get the help you need. In this model, spiritual formation is hindered because what's happening in people matters less than what people are doing. No one knows each other, but they work together. Big things happened, but deep things don't. I wonder what another model would look like Suppose we were Trinitarian in our perspective on all of life. Suppose we denied the cultural assumption that deep work in the human soul belongs only in the therapist office and not in the Christian community. Suppose we recognize that there's no such thing as an expert of the soul. There are experts of the body and medicine and Dentistry, there are experts in things like car mechanics, but there's no expert of the soul. There are only shepherds of the soul, elders of the soul. And suppose we understood that and said that in the church itself, Lewis was right that we're really here to see people become like Christ, and Paul's burden is the burden that should energize every pastor I'm in the pains of childbirth until, until we get a better evangelism program. Until Christ is formed in you, then maybe the central DNA of the local church, rather than make something happen, could be to know God better, to become more like God, to bring more pleasure to the heart of God. Communion with the Trinity, relating with the Trinity is the first thing. As a wise old pastor once wrote to his suffering congregation, I know the experience of communion with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and my joy will be complete if you know that experience as well, 1 John 1.3. Maybe the center of the church is not, let's get things going, but rather, what would it mean to relate to each other in a way that would promote our intimacy with the Father and the Son by the Spirit? If that's our center... if that were our center, then the second part of the model, we would want to hear God speak, and therefore we become people of the word. Brennan Manning said that if if it's true that God is speaking, then nothing matters more than listening. And we listen centrally through the word. Yes, of course, through prayer, by His Spirit. But centrally, God has spoken to us through His Word. And if the church were committed to spiritual formation, as I think I've heard Keith say, we'd become better exegetes of the Bible than exegetes of movies. Knowing the Bible, not to master knowledge, but to encounter God, will become vital in all our activities and therefore we get very serious about disciplines like hermeneutics. How do you read the Bible to meet God versus to defend your millennial position? And the effect of listening to God, if our commitment is to spiritual formation and we open the text to hear God pour himself into us and to draw us into himself, then the effect of the word, the third circle, is going to be community. Notice the words we're lacking on the other model. We'll want to relate like he does. We'll pay the price of honesty and brokenness to do it. Folks, I don't know a tougher thing in the world than developing a long-term good small group. The Trinity's pulled it off, but we don't know how to. We've been involved in a small group now for three and a half years. We're struggling, but we've made a commitment. We're not going to be together for one year. Our commitment is to stay together for life. For life. Now, it isn't as strong a commitment as to my wife. But my thought is, if we can't handle it in the long term, folks, I can get along with anybody for an hour. (laughs) Particularly if you pay me. I promise I'll get along with you. (laughs) But what does it mean to develop a community where, where the things that drive me nuts about you are just in my face for years? Change. and I'll help you. (laughs) How do we learn to talk to each other about our deepest realities and get closer because of it? Not because we value vulnerability. That's not the highest ethic in the Christian life. Vulnerability is often an excuse for narcissism. I'll share my deepest struggles, and you jolly well better come through in a certain way, and if you don't, I'm leaving this group. But maybe we can substitute... Authenticity for vulnerability. Where we become authentic pilgrims, not self-obsessively vulnerable people who demand that others respond to us, but authentic pilgrims who are sharing for the purpose of being caught up in the larger story of God. In the fourth circle, in the second model, If we're committed to spiritual formation and knowing God better, if we become people of the Word and see how the Word directs us, now what Jesus says is always true, as you've already heard, and and become students, apprentices of the Master, and become apprentices together in our community, sitting under the Word, and develop communities where what matters more to us is becoming spiritual, as opposed to getting our way, and what matters more to us is being a blessing to others than getting other people to deal with us as we wish. If that becomes a reality, then I would suggest we're going to discover our true selves and the last circle will become a reality. There'll be a release. The search for God... Together in brokenness, we'll release who we most truly are, and we'll discover our unique burden. We'll discover our unique calling. We'll develop a vision for marriage ministry or inner city work or other kinds of missions, and we'll pray for good things to happen, of course. We'll envision what could be. We'll strategize. We'll mobilize. Those aren't bad words, but only when they come after a deeper commitment to having God at the very center of our burden for spiritual formation. In the second model, I see ego is not as, does not serve as a core passion. Self-obsession will be replaced with God-obsession. Spiritual theology, beginning with Trinitarian theology, will perhaps free us to relate to each other in spiritual conversations. I urge you as I bring my remarks to a close, do give serious thought to measuring the, the maturity of your community but by, by how well you relate to each other when shameful, when shameful things surface. How well do you relate to each other when difficulties of a very practical nature surface? Spiritual theology will free us to relate to each other in spiritual conversations that will generate spiritual community, which will empower, I suggest, our movement toward spiritual maturity, toward groaning in this world until we get home, but occupying with advancing his kingdom until he comes by relating well. fun to have the chance to share the bee in my bonnet with y'all. been a psychologist now for, I don't know, 35, 40 years. I don't see my identity as a psychologist anymore. I don't see my identity as a spiritual director. I don't like the term spiritual director. I love the idea of spiritual directing. I love the idea of engaging with each other in meaningful conversations. But I'm so committed to the position that if God does exist eternally as a trinity. Then more than anything else, I've got to think about how I relate to my wife, to my kids, to my friends. And when I get honest about that, I'm not going to be self-obsessed. I'm going to be self-broken. And then maybe I'm going to seek out the spiritual community where together we can learn what it means to relate in a way that moves us more and more toward God obsession. Thank you. All right, we'll have time for a few questions. Uh, So Carl, uh, anybody have one that they're ready? Jump to the mic with, please do so or Love me tender, Larry. <laughs> um, anybody with a question? i uh, yes. Oh, you've got one. Great. Come to the mic, sir. We want to remind you that uh, New Way Ministries has a display. It's area number two. It's number two hundred seven um, for New Way Ministries to look. Find out more about what Larry's been talking about. In your talk, you mentioned. Um Nothing changes us more deeply than to look bad in the face of love. Can you please tell us some more about what you mean by that? Some wag has said that only two things have changed the soul of man, the fall and grace. And until grace becomes essential to my being, I don't value it. And I'm not going to value grace until I face a level of brokenness that makes me aware that my culpability has no excuse whatsoever. And when I'm in a position where I know that I deserve rejection and find acceptance, that's when I'm drawn irresistibly to the Father. In simplest terms, that's all I mean by looking bad in the presence of love. And i rather think that our communities could model that in ways we rarely do because we really are very much impression managers. We really are very careful to speak only those things that create the impression we desire. I do have a chance to speak a lot, and I'm often told that, Larry, I appreciate how vulnerable you are publicly, and I often kind of chuckle inside because my vulnerability publicly is incredibly selective. Mm. Frankly, because I don't trust my audiences. How could I? But I will trust a certain few people. I better have a couple of people in my life that I'm willing to make myself known to very deeply, and when they don't move away from me, when they see me at my worst then something in me says, my goodness, is that what grace is like? Is that what the Father supplies perfectly that you've supplied a little taste of? And when that happens, I believe I'm drawn into the relationship of Father and Son. Thank you. you. You talked a little bit about the difference between vulnerability and authenticity. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that and specifically on how you encourage authenticity. Yeah, I think... um, I think our therapeutic culture has, not not, not 100%, but um, is responsible for a lot of the mess we're in. And I think our therapeutic culture basically assumes that change has more to do with being very vulnerable about where you are. But the purpose of vulnerability typically, and I'm using a semantic distinction here, which may not hold entirely, but let me define vulnerability in this way. That vulnerability so often is defined as the opportunity to to get insight into myself so that I can be a happier person as opposed to, that's vulnerability, as opposed to authenticity, but I want to um, face where I am so that I can be lifted up into the larger story of God and serve his purposes more deeply and more fully in my life. So when I share my struggles, if I share with a demand that you respond in a given way, I'm being vulnerable as I'm defining the term, But if I share it with a longing, that in a community we'll together find God. And if you don't move in a way that helps me in that, I won't hate you for it. You failed me, but I didn't come to you to be successful in that. My authenticity is simply to know God better, and I come to you with no demands. I call it agenda-free sharing. I have no agenda as I share, other than knowing God better, but I have no agenda for you that puts a, a pressure on you and demands that you come through for me. And that's authenticity in my mind. Very good. Thank you very much. Anything else at all that you'd like to respond to? Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me? That's enough. I'm sorry I interrupted that. (laughs) I think it was the mercy of God, actually. Dr. Crabb, I heard Keith mention in the introduction earlier in the day about the whole issue of spiritual direction and finding a spiritual director. You have talked about it as well uh, some um, in, in your talk. Could you share a little bit about the benefits of that for an individual? And, and um, I, I've wondered about how you go about identifying that person, finding that person. Um, could you just uh, elaborate on that some? couple things. One, I would say um, be willing to go outside the box and to go outside of your particular tradition and don't demand that your spiritual director be your pastor. Um, I put too much pressure on him sometimes or her, um, but go out of the box. Um, Second thing I'd say um, is that I I personally, and this is a bias of mine, I personally don't like, um, I'm really scared that spiritual direction is going to become professionalized. And that spiritual direction will be seen as something which only those with a two-year program and a two-year degree, they are spiritual directors. I am now a spiritual director. Come to see me. I see spiritual direction as much more organic to the community. Now, I'm not saying that the training is bad. I offer training in spiritual direction. I'm not saying training is bad, but I am suggesting that, that it's wrong to professionalize it. Let it become more an organic part of the community. And discover in your own in your own community... Um, obviously pray about it, think about it, talk with people, and find somebody that perhaps is, has some years on you, that's ahead of you in the journey, that that um, I would say at least two things. One, that the person has a, has a very rich understanding of the immediate presence of God, that God is always present in a person's life. Somebody who's not aware of that cannot provide spiritual direction for me. Uh, Jean-Pierre de Goussard, the old writer, um, Sacredness of the Present Moment, he, one of his key lines in his book is that everything leads me to God, and I want to be with somebody who no matter what happens in my life, they're aware that God has not taken a nap, God is moving, God is working, um, and that they're, they're aware of, of wanting to introduce me into a deeper reality of God in the moment. But secondly, and I think this is maybe one of the weaknesses in, in some portions of what I see as spiritual direction... That there's a Sometimes in spiritual direction circles, there's what I believe is a rather weak homardiology, a rather weak understanding of the depth of sin that requires brokenness. Too often spiritual direction is just an awakening to God as opposed to waking up to a recognition of what is wrong with me in the moment, in my immediate relational style. And I want to be talking with somebody who's very aware of those two things. And when they're aware of those two things, then I'm willing to make my soul available to them for their input. And that's the person with whom I can have a good conversation. And I just don't want to take the term spiritual direction and so marginalize it or so specialize it that it doesn't belong in in good lunchtime conversations with good friends. Yes, ma'am a question about the two models that you showed up there. Um, I've read many of your books and it stirs up in my heart the desire to have that second model that you presented be the kind of church that I'm a part of, and yet I find myself in a church that's very much in the first model. What would you say to someone who's want longing for that second model but really isn't, I'm not even aware of many churches that follow that model, so what do we do? that's what you're here this week to discover. That's the perfect segue, man. Keith has the that's answer for you. Yeah. Let me just say one word about it. It's time to quit. Um, I think that's a very common struggle. And what I don't want to encourage is um, go become a critic of your church. What I do want to encourage is become the kind of person that offers spiritual community within your church. That's a soundbite answer, but our time is about done. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.